In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. And as always, thanks to our sponsor, Knowledge Vine, the leader in human performance improvement training and technologies. If you want to learn about the most advanced safety technology adapted from the human performance principles of the nuclear and aviation industries, then check out their book entitled Remedy, the Formula for an Evolving Human Performance Culture. And for a limited time, my listeners can actually receive a free copy of this book if they'll reach out to me on LinkedIn. And supplies are limited, so jump on out there and reach out to me and learn more about KnowledgeVine at KnowledgeVine.com. Today, my guest on the show is Dan Arthur. Dan is the president and chief engineer of ALL, that's A-L-L, ALL Consulting. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, Dan, I hope my listeners saw on LinkedIn not too long ago that we were ranked in Feedspot.com's blog as one of the top 10 oil and gas podcasts to listen to. The reason for that has nothing to do with the host. It's strictly because of the quality of guests we have on the show. You are no exception. And as is often the case, I have someone on the show who's got more letters behind his name than he does in his name. (laughs) So you are a PE. And, you know, I may be really showing my ignorance here, but I always suppose I have a smart audience, but then I probably have some that aren't so smart like me. I've never figured out how do you distinguish between PE as professional engineer or petroleum engineer? So I'm both. So I'm a registered professional engineer in 35 states, and then I'm a registered professional petroleum engineer through the Society of Petroleum Engineers. That's the SPEC. Okay. All right. That's next. So I got PE and I got SPEC, and then we got CPG. So I'm an oddball. So I'm both an engineer and a certified petroleum geologist, and that's the CPG. And then I'm a fellow with the Geological Society. And I've got a few others on there, like the National Association of Forensics Engineers and so forth. But Oh, wow. Well, we're going to have an interesting conversation today, then. I'm, I'm excited about this. Now, the ALL Consulting, A-L-L, is that an acronym or is it just ALL Consulting means you cover it all in the oil and gas industry? It's A-L-L Consulting, and it's a firm I founded with a couple of friends back in 1999 doing HSE, environmental water, various kinds of projects, and it expanded into a multidisciplinary firm since then. Yeah, I looked at your website. It's pretty impressive. You're located in all consulting. It's located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Is that right? That's where we're headquartered, but we've got people all over the place, not unlike some of the big consulting firms out there. Okay. And as a matter of fact, I think today uh, I'm talking to you. As always, I'm in Houston, but I think I'm talking to you out in Phoenix, Arizona. Yep. You have some work out in that area too, huh? Yeah, we're doing a little bit of geothermal work and some other things out this way. So, Okay, well, actually, geothermal, that may be a subject that we want to get into maybe at another time. I actually met you through, I think you'd listened to one of my podcasts and somebody that was an associate of yours was on the podcast and, you know, I should have written it down off the top of my head. I can't remember who it was. But I then noticed that there's a huge, what they call shale water management 
conference coming up here pretty soon. And actually, one of your people from All Consulting is one of the speakers. And so I thought we'd spend a few minutes on this podcast talking about managing ENP produced water. How's that sound? That sounds great. Okay. So ENP produced water, this ranges from water disposal to reuse and recycling, but the landscape's changing right now. Is that right? Well, I mean, obviously ENP produced water is, you know, water produced association with oil and gas development and managing that water, whether disposal or reuse, recycling or whatever has certainly changed over the years. So let's talk about when they bring oil up from the ground, they often also bring up water. Is that right? That's correct. And that's what we call produced water. You get the benefit of both worlds, right? You get the oil and then you get this nice drinking water that comes up out of that, right? <laughs> if it was that easy, then we wouldn't be having the challenges we are. So. <laughs> well, let's talk about those challenges. Tell me about them. So, you know, I've been doing this for about 40 years, Russell. So, you know, when I started, we were working primarily in conventional oil and gas development and things seemed, you know, not quite as complicated, but there was still a lot of produced water associated with the development of oil and gas. And, you know, a big, I would say the primary way to manage that water was through the use of underground injection, primarily through class two disposal wells or EOR projects, let's say. Back okay, in the, you use the acronym EOR, explain that. So that's enhanced oil recovery. So that could be, say, a water flood where you're trying to inject water to enhance your oil recovery from a conventional field. And when you're talking about conventional field, you're talking about straight up and down, right? I would say not necessarily. So, so vertical wells are probably the most common and most commonly associated with conventional oil and gas development. But this would be into, you know, reservoirs that have good porosity permeability where the oil and gas resources may be trapped through some sort of geologic confinement like an anticline or a fault or something like that. What we've entered into now is through the kind of the fracking revolution is in unconventionals is getting oil and gas resources from many reservoirs that are tight shales or tight limestones that otherwise you'd never be able to get that those hydrocarbons to the surface. Yeah, and those hydrocarbons have always been there, but we weren't able to get to them in a economical fashion. Is that right? I'd say that's true. If you look, you know, in the Williston Basin up in Montana and North Dakota, operators had produced oil from the Bakken formation for a lot of years, but until unconventional development, horizontal wells and high volume hydraulic fracturing came along, the wells that would be produced, you know, were completed into the Bakken made very little oil. And now through technology with, you know, long horizontal wells and multi-stage high volume hydraulic fracturing, you know, wells in that same formation are producing, you know, hundreds of barrels of oil a day, which is not unlike other areas. And it, it's not always oil in the Marcellus shale. It could be gas or the Utica right. shale. But. And they started this out with, uh, I guess, far shorter laterals, but now they're running these laterals out miles, right? Yeah, I did a paper for the U.S. Department of Energy. It's called the Shale Primer and really kind of reviewing things on that. And I think I did that in maybe 2006 or eight. 
And at that point, you know, lateral lengths for horizontal wells were generally, you know, a mile or two mile at most, and oftentimes only a few thousand feet. And now we can get lateral lengths on horizontals that could be, you know, two to five miles. I still recall, you know, some of the first hydraulic fracturing jobs we did, you had, you know, they were single stage, you know, jobs. They were just very difficult to really control. Okay, so single stage. So now you're saying we've got, so they were just fracking one particular area and now they're doing several of them? It's oil and gas industry and it had lots of different names for them, but you would have your horizontal, you would perforate all through the horizontal and try to drop these steel balls during the frack job to plug up where things were, you know, maybe where fluids were primarily going and it didn't work real well. And now what we do is we do multi-stage hydraulic fracturing. So we'll go a couple hundred feet or 500 feet and then, you know, and do a bunch of different stages so we can better control the fracturing that's done downhole and better fully create a complex fracture network. And then they're actually able to frack multiple wells at the same time off the same pad. Is that right? So the thing that how this, I'd say, got started was, you know, you would, there was a lot of single well pads that were done and wells were drilled and fracked. I would say a lot to hold production to get to this, they called HBP, held by production. And then when they would go in and drill and frack the other wells on the pad, they would, it could negatively impact that first well. So a lot of what's happening now is you see, you know, multiple wells drilled on a pad and them all fracked through a, what they call, say, a zipper fracking process. And that helps control the pressure down, you know, in the reservoir so that they can just create a really good and complete complex fracture network. Because that's what we're looking for is this complex fracture network. So imagine a rock hitting a car windshield, you know, where it, you have all these cracks that go all, all through the windshield. Spider that's, cracks. Yeah, that's kind of my, you know, way of looking at it. But, you know, that just to get a visual of it in your head. Okay, so what does that have to do with water? <laughs> well, so when kind of unconventional revolution started, you know, we were using maybe, you know, a million or two million gallons of water per well. That is, That's a lot of water. Well, it sounds like a lot of water. That's just in gallons, you know, and now we might use a million barrels or more. Barrels? <laughs> that's times 42. Yes. And then you're looking at multiple wells that on a pad. So there's a lot of water. I mean, some of the water delivery infrastructure projects that we've done in Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico are structured to be able to deliver a lot of water to those wells for fracturing. And then, as you can imagine, once fracturing is done and you're flowing back to, to try to get those hydrocarbons, you bring back a lot of water. And oftentimes the quality of that water is, you know, has got a lot of junk in it. So it's a high concentration of total dissolved solids. And so you need somewhere to go with it. And that's the challenges that we've created and are trying to manage. That's managing EMP produced water, huh? You got it. <laughs> okay. So two questions then. You mentioned, you know, Oklahoma, and we'll come back and talk about that here in just a minute. But I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking West Texas, I'm thinking the Permian Basin. 
that's not an oasis of rivers and aqueducts and that sort of thing. Where do they get all this water? From a variety of different places. So it's a lot of groundwater, surface water, you know, reusing today, reusing produced water. But, you know, just in the Permian Basin alone, you're using about 2 billion barrels of water for hydraulic fracture in a year. So I can hear the environmentalists out there saying we're going to suck the earth dry. It's certainly a challenge both in water supply and water disposal. So I will say that, you know, that we're doing a lot more water reuse and recycling than I would say that we were doing when the unconventional development in hydraulic fraction first came about. But that's part of the answer. But you still need disposal wells and hopefully we can get to a point where you know, we're treating that water, you know, concentrating it and coming up with some water that we can use out in areas like the Permian Basin for beneficial use and irrigation and so forth. And that's actually the, like the conference I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that's actually what these conferences are all about for the most part, really. It's a lot of that, of managing it and people trying to work together and methods for that and so forth. It doesn't maybe seem like it should be all that complicated, Russell, but it's a hoot. (laughs) Okay, so I said we come back to Oklahoma and we're talking about disposal wells and that sort of thing. I know, and it's come up in other areas as well, but I know Oklahoma especially. What about this induced seismicity? What about, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I've been, you know, it's interesting Back in the 80s, when I worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Underground Injection Control Program, we were trying to assess all sorts of different things, including the risks of induced seismicity. And we hired all the national labs to evaluate this. And at the time, all the labs said, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. But the thing that really changed is as we've moved forward, we've gone into Disposal wells that were, say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, were injecting maybe 5,000 barrels of water a day to more recent times where disposal wells may be set up to inject 20,000 barrels a day, 50,000 barrels a day, 100,000 barrels a day into a single well. And so we've got these high volume, you know, water disposal wells. And what happens is even in those, depending on where they're injecting close to basement, or maybe they, you know, inject, you know, 50,000 barrels one day and then nothing the next day. So you're sending out these waves and stuff and, and disposal, especially as you get close to basement and areas of faults down there that are susceptible to movement, things like disposal, but also hydraulic fracturing can create seismicity. Yeah, and you have the challenge of well interference and purge areas and things like that, huh? It's just so interesting how things have evolved over time because, you know, where, you know, in years past, I mean, I've permitted a lot of disposal wells and water floods and high-pressure air injection projects and CO2 injection and gas storage and all these things, but I never anticipated you know, when I got started in this field 40 years ago, how much technical evaluation and planning and all this really needed to be done to do this right in today's world. So we need to look at the geology and 
faulting and the presence and location of other wells and even, you know, potential presence of unplugged wells and other sorts of production that may be a combination of conventional production that's been around for a long time and new production. So we avoid well interference and, you know, some of the things that have been you know, happening in different places through this is these purge areas like you talked about where there may be wells that don't have cement behind casing through an injection interval and water moves further than you anticipate sometimes or it's just a variety of different things. So it's taken, you know, a lot of planning and we're seeing that in the industry now where there's a lot of water infrastructure companies, you know, commercial water midstream companies and they're having to work together to make all this work seamlessly for the producers so they can go develop these resources. And that's where all consulting comes in, right? That's where we come in. Well, there you go, folks. So with all these challenges and people worried about, you know, the induced seismicity and, you know, earthquakes and all this sort of thing, I mean, how confident can we feel that this is being done safely and environmentally responsibly and all that kind of stuff? I would say, you know, it's, you know, just like the conference that you talked about, but there's others like the, you know, the Produce Water Society, the Groundwater Protection Council, which is the GWPC, the Groundwater Protection Council is a, is kind of a makeup of all the state and federal UIC directors around the country, as well as groundwater, you know, state and federal regulatory directors and people involved in all that stuff like me. And so you have a lot of those folks working together and trying to solve problems and look at doing things safely. But you also have the various companies that are doing this. And through that, I would say through those interactions and people working together and all that, there's really a lot of work going in to be conservative. You know, if you go to New Mexico and talk to the state UIC director there, you know, they're very cautious about how close they let injection wells be to each other. Furthermore, if you're building even a water recycling system, they're they're requiring a hefty permitting and evaluation method in advance of that, looking for depths of groundwater and how you build the site so that you don't have any infiltration of the water that you're maintaining in impoundments and so forth. So, you know, things have really evolved technically on that, as well as even pipeline systems that are moving water around so that it can either get from, you know, producing wells to water handling facilities, whether it's injection or recycling or evaporation or something, and moreover, so that water can get to new wells for hydraulic fracturing. So it's like the industry's created its own sort of water utility system, huh? Well, not yet, but Russell, that's where I think this is going to be going. We're seeing, you know, bigger and bigger water midstream companies and those companies working together, you know, to look at those resources. One of the things that we've recently proposed to the Department of Energy is working with a couple of producers, some water midstream companies, and a university there in New Mexico in really evaluating this so you could look at some of the key core technical considerations and so forth so this can all happen in a good and environmentally safe manner while also seamlessly meeting everybody's needs in an environmentally compliant you know way and in 2023 i'll just tell you it's you know 
it's a whole lot more complicated than it was 40 years ago. Well, that's for sure. But we've got a lot more technology involved in it now. we, We do. In fact, I don't think the industry gets credit for the kind of technology that it takes to, you know, bring oil. Yeah. I mean, everybody thinks oil is all about just picking that pump up out of the, at the convenience store and sticking it in your car, you know, but it's quite a process. I think that there's several things from a technology base that we really don't understand the implications that it's made. So, you know, you think about now that we can drill horizontal wells that go out miles and really know where they are and understand having tools and equipment to control the drill bit and all that and the other areas where that kind of technology has been able to come into play and how we're now looking at using technology from the oil and gas industry on things like geothermal energy development in states like Texas, not Nevada or California or Utah, but also for, you know, mining things like iodine and lithium and you know, bromine and cobalt and, you know, so other things that we desperately need and that technology from the oil and gas industry has just been critical. Well, one of the things on this show is the oil and gas industry is not the problem with the environment. It's going to be the solution. So it's nice to have people of your quality and abilities directing these sort of things. And I'm just tickled to death that you came on the show to give us some insight on this. I don't know if we've covered it all or not, I'll give you the last word on that. But before that, a big thing that all consulting is also involved in besides this ENP water management, you guys are big on idle and orphan well plugging and these sort of things, aren't you? Yeah, that's another thing that both the firm and myself are just very passionate about. There's a lot of orphan wells out there, but also idle non-producing wells and you know, I've done expert witness testimony where, you know, wells have blown out or caused environmental problems and so forth, and people have been injured and even killed. So addressing those, you know, some of those issues from the past and really trying to understand them is just critical and important to the country and the world overall. So we're getting real involved in that. We're doing a DOE research project right now on kind of best practices for orphan and idle well plugging and looking at things on how to find wells, you know, making sure we understand the history and so forth. It's interesting, Russell, that, you know, we tend to think and look at things through today's eyes. And, you know, today when we build oil and gas wells or injection wells, we try to do things to protect, you know, groundwater and so forth. And, if we look back in the early 1900s, they put surface casing wells to keep the fresh water out of the oil zones. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I like the way you express that. You can't go back and judge history by today's standards. You have to go back and understand. That's, you know, that's right. It's not that any of that was wrong or whatever. It's just, you know, it's, you know, they were using the best possible technologies that they had and they didn't have the quality of casings or cement or methods and stuff that we have today. So understanding that when you go back into some of these old wells is just important. And many of these old wells were, you know, plugged with mud or tree stumps or, you know, (laughs) brine and, you know, and let's put a bookmark in it right there. And we're going to have you back on again. And that's what we'll talk about. 
Super. That's a very interesting subject as well. Well, thank you again, Dan. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And as always, thanks to all of our listeners. We actually had our largest downloads in the month of June than we've had in the history of the OGG and HSE show. So we really appreciate it. Please, everybody out there, tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn and your other social media. Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or there's actually even a review link in the show notes. And please tune in again next week for another episode of Knowledge Vines Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Remember that Knowledge Vine is your dependable partner for full service human performance and safety consulting. Knowledge Vine is the evolution of human performance. And as I said, you can discover more about Knowledge Vine by finding in the show notes its website link and other contact information. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn for any show suggestions on topics or guests or if you're looking for a speaker or if you'd like to get a copy of the book. And we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.